Hi, I'm Mike Reese. I've been writing for The Simpsons for 30 years. In my free time, I've visited 130 countries, not by choice. Find out where I've gone, what I've done, and most of all, what am I doing here? Americans don't visit South America enough, and that's a shame. I mean, it's right there. The name even gives you directions. Go south of America, and you're in South America. You'll be glad you went. Ecuador feels like the most charming parts of Spain and just might have the best food in the world. Not bad for a country that only exists because an imaginary invisible line passes through it. Buenos Aires is fast-paced and cosmopolitan. It feels just like New York in the 1970s. It's almost nostalgic watching out for pickpockets and clutching your purse to your chest. There's trash in the streets and graffiti on the walls. Luckily, the prices are also from the 1970s. You can get a steak as big as a sailboat for $6. A three-buck cab ride will get you anywhere in town. Medellin, Colombia, once the center of the world's drug trade, is like taking a weekend in San Diego. But my friends ask, what about Pablo Escobar? Well, Pablo's been dead for 28 years. In fact, Escobar's home is now a tourist attraction. The scariest part of my visit was having Pablo's brother, who's now the ticket taker, pitch me a movie about his own life. I want to call it Escobar's brother, the devil's accountant. Benicio del Toro could play me. This man looks nothing like Benicio del Toro. While I was in Colombia, I asked the local, Donde esta Starbucks? She stuck out her tongue at me. I figured this was because I was asking for American coffee in a country that grows the best in the world. But no, Colombians point with their tongues instead of their fingers. It's weird, it's charming, but it's weird. Despite what you may think, South America is not a strange land of hostile climates and baffling customs. Except for the next two stories I'm going to tell you. If there were a museum of bad ideas, the main exhibit would be, well, the museum itself. It's a terrible concept. But the second worst idea might be this. Let's turn an old industrial slaughterhouse into a luxury hotel. The problem is not that someone tried this, it's that they didn't try hard enough. From the outside, this posh resort in southern Chile looks like a death camp, because that's what it was. A century ago, up to 250,000 sheep were butchered here every year. To access the hotel's Zen Spa, you have to walk through the same concrete chute thousands of lambs were funneled through on their trip to the stockyards. To reach the elegant dining room, you have to pass through the Gallery of Carnage, a cavernous drafty hall decorated with photos of lambs being skinned and hung on hooks. Bon appetit! If I were a vegan, this place would be the Ritz Auschwitz. But even though I love eating little lambs, this place creeped me out. My room was cozy and beautifully appointed, but when I lay down on the bed, I could see they'd kept the old abattoir ceiling. Rusty steel plates with a single bare bulb sticking out. The decor was an uncomfortable mix of Downton Abbey and Saw. Another problem with this hotel, and it really didn't need another problem, was that every single employee in every single department was bad at their job. 
reception, housekeeping, and especially the bar staff. Every night I'd order a cerveza just to see what they'd bring. A whiskey sour, a bowl of peanuts, nothing, a cup of coffee, the hotel manager, a prostitute, anything but a beer. Ordering became a da-da exercise. Of course, it's hard to find good help when you build your hotel in one of the least populated spots on the planet. Patagonia. But with its snow-capped mountains, crystal blue rivers, and sweeping golden plains, there's no place quite like Patagonia. Except Montana, and Colorado, and Utah, and Idaho, I imagine. But Patagonia has one thing they don't have. Persistent gale force winds. The wind blows all the friggin' time, and like Patagonia itself, it blows hard. The travel agent who sent us here neglected to mention this, but everyone else couldn't stop talking about it. There was the tour guide. This was the last place on Earth man settled due to the high winds. The cruise captain. There are at least three reasons for Patagonian's high winds. The hotel clerk. You might wear these earplugs to bed to block the noise of the high winds. It's windy because there's no other land at this latitude. Even Pangea knew not to come here. If you don't believe me, look at a map. You're not going to look at a map. All the wind in the lower southern hemisphere hits Patagonia because there's nothing else on Earth to stop it. It's a great place to visit if you're a kite. When I called the travel agent to complain, she said, Patagonia is lovely except for the wind, which is like saying lung cancer is a lot of fun except for the cancer. In fact, the tobacco companies have said just that. So why do people travel here? It's the name, Patagonia. It sounds so romantic, one friend asked me, you mean that's a real place? Of course, the name loses a little something in translation. It's like the Bolshoi Ballet. It sounds so classy, but Bolshoi just means big. Bolshoi Ballet, big ballet, big deal. According to legend, when Magellan first visited Patagonia, he saw an Indian's huge footprint in the snow. The natives stood almost a foot taller than the European invaders. These people have feet like dogs, patos, Magellan is said to have remarked. Let's kill them all. Patagonia, terrific name for a sportswear company. Land of people with duck feet, not so much. Patagonia has lovely glaciers you can cruise by, but to reach the tour boat, you have to walk across a mile-wide valley where the winds gust at 80 miles per hour. The gales literally blew my mouth open and began inflating me like a party balloon. When I finally reached the boat, the captain told me, The water's a little rough today, but don't worry. We have a plan B. A few minutes later, the trip was canceled due to, brace yourself, high winds. So what's plan B, I asked. He replied, we have no plan B. There is in fact just one other tourist attraction here. It's called Trace Torres, three giant black squares of rock jutting out of a mountaintop. They look like something out of Dante. They look like Satan's rotting teeth. Google a picture if you don't believe me. You're not going to Google a picture. It's a four hour near vertical climb to reach the devil's dentures with the wind pushing you back at every step. Everything about this place said, don't go there. My wife wanted to go there. 
A good husband would never send his wife on this life-threatening hike alone, so clearly, I suck. Denise and I have been together for 30 years. We could spend one random day apart. This random day happened to be December 25th. My wife spent Christmas making this grueling climb while I remained in the comfort of the Abattoir Suites Hotel. That's where I wrote this podcast, while enjoying an ice-cold cerveza. Of course, what I'd ordered was a club sandwich. It would be the worst Jan and Dean song ever. Four cows for every boy. But there truly are 3.8 cows for every person in Uruguay. And due to proximity, or maybe interbreeding, the Uruguayans are somewhat cow-like. They're slow-moving, they're quiet, and they're very contented. In fact, Uruguay has repeatedly been named the happiest country in South America. I was skeptical. After all, Disneyland is the happiest place on Earth, and it's depressing and expensive and been home to eight accidental deaths and one murder. Look it up. You're not going to look it up. My suspicions were aroused when we landed in the nation's capital, Montevideo. It's that rare large city with no nice parts whatsoever. If we have a romantic vision of this place, it's because we mispronounce it with flair. Montevideo. The locals call it Monte Video, making it sound more like an 80s shop where a guy named Monty rents VHS tapes. Mostly porn. The city is bisected by a pedestrian mall that extends for miles. But I never saw any pedestrians on it because it wasn't really much of a mall. No restaurants, no shops, no video rental. Just shuttered storefronts, graffiti, and bird crap. Oh, so much bird crap. At the end of the mall, I saw two homeless men cooking a steak over a cinder block stuffed with newspaper. Uruguayans are the MacGyvers of grilling. They can fashion a barbecue out of anything. A broken bottle, a postage stamp, a block of ice. One of these mud cake men offered me a hunk of their meat wrapped in a used kitchen sponge. I took it. Again, there were no restaurants around. And it was the greatest hunk of meat I ever ate in my life. When the cows outnumber the people four to one, there's no excuse for bad beef. Steak is the main ingredient in the country's national dish. The Chivito, it's a sandwich on French bread stuffed with an entire friggin' steak as well as mozzarella, tomatoes, mayonnaise, black olives, green olives, and bacon. Oh, and ham, too. That's right, they've got two kinds of pork, ham and bacon. And in case that doesn't kill you, it's topped with a fried egg. It's a sandwich designed by committee. Everyone in Uruguay chose an ingredient and all of them went in. The finished Chivito is about the size of a piece of carry-on luggage, and it costs about three bucks. That includes a side of fries so huge, it seems like they brought you every French fry on earth. The Chivito is sold everywhere, from drugstores to fine restaurants, and everyone eats them completely. I watch small children devour sandwiches much larger than themselves. The locals wash down this Tarana sandwich, Rex, with a drink just as unique. Mata. Every Uruguayan walks the streets encumbered with a pouch of mata leaves, 
a thermos filled with hot water, a coconut-shaped drinking vessel, a silver drinking straw, and generally a ringing cell phone and a crying infant. Mata looks like tea, has the kick of coffee, and is as complex to prepare as crystal meth. I like the stuff so much I brought home a whole Mata rig and five pounds of leaves. Years later it sits unopened in my cupboard. The number one tourist destination in Uruguay is Punta del Este, a spit of land that curls into the Atlantic and comes to a point so sharp you could cut a chivito with it. Both sides of the peninsula are developed with high-rise beach resorts, but there's a catch. On the sheltered bay side, the weather is calm and warm. On the ocean side, you're perpetually battered by cold ocean winds. Can you guess which side Mr. Trump built his luxury condos? Here's a hint. The sign, featuring Eric Trump in a hard hat, has blown down and splintered to bits. You have to wonder about the quality of the condo construction when even the billboard can't stand up. On the town's main beach stands the symbol of Punta del Este. It's a sculpture of five concrete fingers, each the size of a man, clawing their way out of the sand. <laughs> what does it even mean? Hey, come for a day at the beach and get crushed by a giant from hell. I left the town via the only bridge. It has four huge nausea-inducing humps in it for no good reason. And I headed off to Atlantida, a city comprised entirely of quirk. I passed by a house that looks like an eagle, a hotel that looks like a ship, and a church that looks like an army of ice cream cones, all within one mile of each other. These weren't even tourist attractions. They weren't marked on the map. I also visited the ruins of a castle, that was inhabited by an alchemist in 1966. Yes, they had a guy making a good living at alchemy when the Beatles were big. I reached my quirk quota and then some at a Uruguayan boutique hotel. It had no room numbers, just an abstract symbol on each door. This is fine until you get lost, which I did almost immediately. I spent three hours roaming the halls, was I in zigzag or squiggle, spiral or counterclockwise spiral? When I finally found my room, it was so crammed with idiosyncratic knickknacks, there was no place for my bags. Where can I put my luggage, I asked the manager. He replied, luggage? Forty years in the hotel business and he'd never encountered this concept. I'd had enough. I wanted to go home to New York where my house was shaped like a house, and the number on the door was a number. This place was nice for a while, but I finally got sick of its cuteness. Just like Disneyland. Nobody promised me Uruguay would be beautiful or exciting or fascinating. They didn't even say I'd be happy there, just that the locals were. I didn't quite get this till I met the happiest man in New York. He wasn't a mayor or a millionaire or a mogul or a movie star. He was a shabby guy on the subway, gibbering gleefully on his cell phone. I'm just swimming along, singing a song. Got a couple of lampreys hanging on my belly and some barnacles on my tail. But life is good, man. Life is good. It took me a moment to realize three things about this guy. His cell phone was a baby shoe. He thought he was a whale. And he was proud to be a whale, even though he really wasn't one. 
Uruguay is like that. It's a nation of four million kooks who are inordinately proud of their country for no good reason. They're proud of their bizcochos, the national dessert that's just salty crumbs held together with grease. And they choke these down with their local coffee, which may be the worst in the world. They built gorgeous museums honoring their two best-known painters whom no one has ever heard of. There's Joaquin Torres Garcia, who draws like a kid who owns four crayons, and Carlos Paez Viaro, who draws like Joaquin Torres Garcia. Uruguay was really a nice place to visit if you just lowered your standards enough. Just like Disneyland. Well, that's a cheap shot. What Am I Doing Here was written and performed by Mike Reese and produced by Josh Perillo. Additional voices by Trevor Morris, Mike's Funny Doorman.